Naomi, thank you so much for giving me some time to talk to you about Doppelganger. Um, a lot of people, I think, might come to this book because of its starting point, which is The Other Naomi. But this isn't really a book about The Other Naomi. But could you maybe start by telling me where she figures in this book? So it does begin with um, the fact that I do have a doppelganger, <laughs> by which I mean that there is somebody who I get perennially confused with. And this has been going on for a decade now. Um, and, and she is an interesting figure in the sense that I think she's part of a much larger phenomenon um, where people are sort of changing quite dramatically. You know, you talk to people and they're like, oh, I can't talk to my father anymore. My grandmother won't get off Facebook. She believes these wild things now. Or, oh, I used to really trust this person and they, now they seem to have like completely turned into somebody else. Um, so there's this kind of flip that's going on or a, a, a migrating of minds. Um, and the person who I refer to as other Naomi, Naomi Wolf, um, is one of those people, right? She used to be a very prominent uh, um, liberal feminist, you know, advised Al Gore, um, uh, you know, wrote best-selling books about feminism and, and body image and, and and now pals around with, with Steve Bannon and Tucker Carlson um, and has been a vector for um, uh, a lot of medical misinformation, like the idea that people who get vaccines shed those vaccines onto pe unvaccinated people and then maybe they won't be able to have babies or it affects their fertility. Um, and so I have been getting confused with her, um, you know, I think definitely for, for, for probably for more than a decade without mm. my knowledge. I remember having a conversation with somebody where he was telling me that I had absolutely been to a Christmas party with him. And I was like, I really was not at that Christmas party, <laughs> you know, and he was just really adamant that we had been at this random house Christmas party. I'm like, no, definitely not. Um, and, uh, and so, and then afterwards I was like, did he think I'm this? <laughs> um, so, the truth is that it's not a book about her. Um, it, you know, it doesn't offer any diagnosis for why she's doing these things. Um, but it does look at her as a kind of a case study for the rise of conspiracy culture. But also the idea of having a, uh, somebody who, who people think is me. Mm. Um, and it got really out of control during COVID when we were all spending way too much time online. And she was very, very active during COVID because mm. she was, you know, one of the people who was most vocal against vaccines, against vaccine passports, against masks, against, you know, against, against all, basically everything that we were doing to try to stop the spread of COVID. Mm. You know, there's something about watching your public image be like slip beyond your control that I found really interesting and mm. kind of freeing because, um, you know, we live in a culture that tells us that we really need to perfect our ourselves, you know, whether it's our brand or our bodies or our families. And like, this is our, our life raft in this, these turbulent capitalist waters, you know, just, just optimize and, 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 and be the absolutely most glowing, most perfected, um, you know, most unassailable version of yourself. And then, you know, it's, 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 that's something I've always had trouble with. Mm. 
you know, my first book was called No Logo. It was against branding. And then it was like, am I a brand? I didn't mean to be, but I sort of became one. But I've always, you know, I, I teach university students about the sort of, you know, help them to kind of problematize the idea that we should see ourselves as products, as you know, in, in the marketplace as opposed to people. And what does it do to the human if we do? Um, but none of us are outside of it, right? Mm. And so here I, I found myself with a brand, a branding crisis. Yeah. <laughs> and my, you know, my first reaction was like, I must defend my brand. And then it was like, this is really interesting. I just got interested in what is this thing we call the self? And if I have lost control of, of it, which I had, um, well, that's kind of freeing. That means I can write whatever kind of book I want. Right. And so I decided to write a different kind of book. Yes, I was say, it's a very, very different topic. People are very used to reading your books where you're an observer of the world mm -hmm. and commenting on it. But here you're right in the centre of the book. It's very much more personal than your previous books. It's sort of amusing, I suppose, to the reader. Mm -hmm. I, I, I have to confess, I have done the thing of confusing <laughs> the Naomi's. Mm -hmm. And then cause I, you know, you'd hear about a book or something that she had said, and I'd be like, that's weird. And I'd be like, oh, no, sorry, wrong Naomi. And, and I'd correct myself. But there's a point surely at which it became less amusing and, and more worrying for you. And then you yeah. do share some very, you know, some very personal things in this book. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's written in a different kind of voice, I would say. Um, it's more the voice that I, that is my real voice. Um, that is the way I talk to friends. Mm. It's got all kinds of ridiculous anecdotes in it about tel you know, television presenters saying, next up, an interview with Naomi Campbell, which has also happened to me. I don't know what it is about the name Naomi. Um, I have a theory, which is like the first Naomi that you, like it's a rare enough, it's not, it's, it's not a rare name, but it isn't a yeah. common name. So somehow the first Naomi that you ever okay. kind of <laughs> becomes the only like universal Naomi, Naomi yeah. yeah, and then and then just all Naomi's are that Naomi. <laughs> I don't know. I, I try to make sense of it, you know. Um, but yeah, I think I think there was something freeing about realizing, oh boy, this has gotten really bad. Like when I when I when I would look online um, in the first COVID year, all my social media mentions were just like you know, jokes, poems, rants. I can't believe Naomi Klein is telling people not to wear masks. I can't believe she thinks this about vaccines. And then people just laugh, like, and it got very meta, like people just laughing about the fact that they knew I would get blamed mm. for what she was doing. And so I'll be honest with you. Like, I, you know, I wrote my first book when I was in my twenties, I got really lucky, you know, um, and and then, you know, when No Logo came out, I, I, be, I was sort of anointed, like, spokesperson of the new left, you know. And I think that, um, you know, I, I don't want to diss my other books, like The Shock Doctrine, but, yeah. but I think I really felt the sort of weight of the left on my shoulders. Like, I felt the weight of having to um, be a very serious nonfiction author and, 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 and write with that um, a voice that honestly isn't really how I talk, mm. you know? And so I, you know, I still, you know, I, I'm, I, I teach university students, I do academic research. Um, you know, I may write in that voice at, at some other point again, but I, I really wanted to get back to what made me want to be a writer in the first place, um, which is just having a bit more fun with form and language. And it just seemed like, well, given that I had lost all control <laughs> with, what with the Naomi, the other Naomi problem mm. and the, the Naomi confusion um, and having a little bit more time 
uh, because of COVID, mm. I just decided to kind of play with form and it felt really fruitful, this, mm. this idea of doubling and, uh, um, and, and it really struck me that yes, I have an extreme version of losing control over my identity online um, because of the very specific niche issue that I encounter. <laughs> but all of us who create an avatar and you know, burnish our, our brands and try to, try to present a, you know, a perfectly calibrated version of ourselves online um, are also kind of doubling ourselves mm. And we also can lose control over of ourselves with a hacked account or a deep fake, um, or or just a misrepresented, you know, misinterpreted, badly worded tweet, mm. you know. And you could find yourself on the receiving end of all kinds of loathing um, and ridicule. So, I think the self it feels precarious to a lot of us now. So I thought, well, maybe I could use this kind of exaggerated <laughs> experience that I've had as a way into talking about something that feels a little bit more universal about, you know, who are any of us yeah. and, and do any of us have control? It, the book does take in lots of topics and mm. I'll come to some of those a bit later, but what was really interesting to me was that you do start off looking at some literary uh, doppelgangers. And as somebody who had read a fair bit of Philip Roth in uh -huh. my youth, I was so intrigued to see you talking about Operation Shylock. Mm -hmm. Could you maybe talk a little bit about why that book is so important to this book and what it says about doppelgangers? Mm. Oh, I love that book. So <laughs> um, and now this will be an ad for Operation Shylock. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I read a lot of doppelganger literature um, to keep me company on this journey. Mm. Um, yeah, Dostoevsky's The Double was, was really helpful. Um, uh, Edgar Allan Poe's William Wilson was also really helpful just mm. in the sense of, you know, you often in doppelganger art and literature, there's this confusion. Is the, is the double actually a double or is it a projection? Is it the abject self? Um, and of course, that's always unclear in Philip Roth's novels, right? Because his, his main characters are always doppelgangers of Philip Roth, yeah. right? I mean, that's down to Portnoy and, and, and but then as, as, as he grew older, he became more explicit and started naming his main characters Philip. Um, and then in Shylock, the main character is Philip Roth, hmm. who is Philip Roth, who's written all of Philip Roth's book, except is it, is it Roth? Is it not Roth? And that Roth, the, the, the novel begins with him um, having a mental health breakdown where he, it turns out he has an adverse reaction to a medication and has a complete psychotic break. And he says to his wife, where's Philip? Because, and that's, that's this, I, th I think that this is the appeal of the doppelganger, right? Is that we know that the self is unstable, right? And we know that the self, probably who you were when you were in your 20s, is not the self you are now. Mm -hmm. I know that's, you know, who, we, we go through many selves in our lives and, and, and we can be undone. And it could be a drug trip, it could be a car accident, you know, it could be that hacked account. I mean, we are, we do not have the control mm. over ourselves that we would like to believe and that our culture would have us believe by telling us that we should spend so much time <laughs> investing in ourselves and perfecting ourselves and optimizing ourselves. So as Philip Roth is recovering from the psychotic break, he learns that there is another Philip Roth who is in Jerusalem and is just up to all kinds of mischief. Um, and and then the book takes many many wild turns, but what's 
what's there's a line in that book that is like my was my mantra mm. as I was writing this, which is, it's too ridiculous to take seriously and too serious to be ridiculous. I mean, that's the way I feel about my doppelganger trouble mm. and about much in our culture yeah. right now, <laughs> which is like, you're just kind of on the on the, on the line on the precipice, you know, between laughter and tears. Mm. You, we are just like one laugh cry emoji, you know, as a culture, because. You know, I would, I, I, you know, I, a lot of what, what, what was going on during COVID, not just from her, but from many people who were spreading sort of absurd theories like vaccine shedding, you know, and so on. Um, it was, it was funny. We were getting, you know, some bleak humor out of mm. it, but it's also true that people were not getting vaccinated um, uh, and, and were putting their, their lives at risk because of it. So it's like, how do we, and so I found Roth really, really helpful mm. in naming um, what he calls pipicism, uh, which is a Yiddish word. Um, and he talks, so in order to sort of try to gain some control over his, what he calls his preposterous proxy, yeah. um, he um, renames him Moisha Pipic, which was the, a sort of a diminutive, diminutive um, nickname that the elders in his family used, mine as well. Um, uh, it basically means Moses' belly button. Pipicism, Pipic is a belly button. Yeah. So you're just kind of, it's a cute name to say to kids, but if to call his doppelganger more shape Pipic, he's saying, you're ridiculous, I'm serious. Mm. But then the thing about doppelgangers is you think that you can do that, but your doppelganger is always your mirror. So you can laugh at them, but in the end, you're laughing at yourself mm. because they are, you know, if, if, if people can confuse um, them for you, then on, on some level, you are as absurd as them yeah, <laughs> or yeah. close enough. It's like my dog, Smoke. I have a dog named Smoke. She's really cute. She's um, a fluffy little cockapoo. And every night um, when it gets dark, she sees her own reflection in the glass. <laughs> And she ferociously barks at herself, yeah. you know, because she thinks there's another adorable uh, white cockapoo who wants to <laughs> come into her, her house. And so she has to guard against it. Yeah. And, um, and that I call that her dog poganger. <laughs> but, you know, when I look at Smoke <laughs> barking at herself, yeah. I realize this is, this is the catch-22 of confronting your doppelganger. Yeah. You always end up confronting yourself. Because Philip Roth <laughs> does confront other Philip Roth yes. in, in Operation Shylock. And you use this phrase, pipicking, so brilliantly in this book because you use it to, to, to talk about how language becomes subverted. Mm -hmm. And it feels to me like that's the key to understanding the, the subtitle of this book, which is A Trip into the Mirror World. Could you talk a little bit about what you mean by the mirror world and what you mean by pipicking, this mm. idea of sort of taking a word and taking, turning it to mean almost its opposite? Yeah, so I mean, in, in Operation Shylock, Roth talks about pipicking, like the pipicking of, um, of language and just the, uh, the forces of, uh, of absurdity, of, uh, of making everything absurd, which is a big part of the fascist playbook, right? Of Mussolini's playbook, of sort of playing the dunce. It's a big part of Trump's playbook. Um, and it's dangerous because, precisely because of what we've been talking about, mm. because, because instead of being afraid, you, you're kind of laughing, mm. you don't take it seriously enough until it's kind of too late. Um, and so I was, you know, 
you, you asked me if this book is about her. It's not. Mm. But she did act as a kind of like white rabbit, if you will, to follow her down mm. her rabbit holes. And, and there I sort of be, started to do something I didn't expect I would do, which is really look into what Steve Bannon has been up to in this period. And, you know, I have listened to just a shockingly um, large number of hours of, mm. of Steve Bannon's podcast and watched it because it's also a video stream. Um, and, you know, I've listened, to, I have many other, you know, alt-right figures as well, but, but Bannon really fascinates me because, he, same with Tucker Carlson as well, because they're really experts at taking the language of the, of the left um, and, and using it, appropriating it and using it against itself. So, for instance, um, you know, one of the things that anti-fascists talk a lot about is othering, like the, the, just the, the, the mechanics of designating a certain group in society and other, and then that becomes the rationale mm. um, for various forms of oppression, abuse, and even eventually extermination, right? Once someone is not fully human, once they are other, anything becomes possible. Mm. It's a really key term, you know? Um, and yeah, I remember listening, listening to, to Bannon's podcast um, about a year, a year ago, and he was was he was selling, and what I mean by mirror world is, um, there's a sort of there's a there's a direct mirror everywhere in the like the world of the people who you know they say they're deplatformed they're canceled, um, they have you know they if, if you've been kicked off Twitter you can get on Getter if you've been kicked off YouTube you can get on Rumble you can um, you know Parler. Um, and Bannon was talking about why they needed to start their own publishing companies and why they needed to have their own currency, which he was selling, because he's always grifting, right? <laughs> he has shares in all of this. And so he was saying, well, because we would never other you, and you're being othered. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, Steve Bannon, who's like, you know, if there's anybody who has, like, played a central role in the rise of real-world fascism, mm -hmm. you know, in Hungary and Brazil... It's it's Steve, you know. I mean, he's he's really quite open about what you know his his, um, his nationalist international, mm. um, and and here he is like using this key, just absorbing this key term. Um, you know, Tucker Carlson will talk about how talking about white people is a, is 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 a precursor to genocide, um, and so it's not that they are really doing much with these words except for making them unusable by us mm. or trying to, right? Mm. And, the, and, and Trump, of course, was a master at this. You know, you know he did it with fake news, which, mm. which was a term that used to mean something. Like it meant literally fake articles, like you know, the articles that were circulating during the 2016 campaign that said that the Pope had endorsed Donald Trump. A lot of people fell for that. And social scientists call this fake news. Mm. It's, it's not a real news story. It didn't happen. You know, it's completely made up, but it's made to look like it came out sort of in something like the Washington Post or something. Yeah. And immediately Trump starts calling, you know, CNN and the New York Times fake news. And, and that term now can't be used, right? It can't be used to describe actual fake news. Yeah. It's just been pipicked. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think a lot of... Um, a lot. So that's the way I use the term. Yeah. Mm. So those words get taken, sort of made ridiculous, mm -hmm. and therefore robbed of their real meaning. So yeah. you you no longer have the language available to you to describe what's actually happening in mm -hmm. the world. And and yeah. And and other Naomi goes on Tucker Carlson, Steve Bannon's shows, and talks about 
how like COVID restrictions are fascism to two people who probably have done more than anybody else in the United States to, mm. you know, roll out the red carpet for actual fascism. Mm. Yeah. Um, as I said, you cover a lot of ground in this book. So we've sort of touched on, on COVID and uh, the idea of vaccines. You also talk a bit about parenthood mm -hmm. and vaccines mm -hmm. um, in parenthood. Uh, any parent will understand yeah. that when you have children, it's just a series of doctor's appointments where you have to get them vaccinated against mm -hmm. this and then that mm -hmm. and, all, and all the rest of it. And a lot of people, I think, will be aware of how there's been some pushback on some of those vaccines because of the spurious claim that the MMR vaccine, for example, was linked to autism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you cover that in this book, but in a very personal way, you talk about your own role as a parent and mm. talk about your family for the first time mm. that's really you make it very clear that you thought very carefully mm -hmm. about whether to include your son in the book mm. but it's clearly pertinent to mm. talking about that topic would you mind telling a little bit more about why that it was so important to talk about that so i think a theme running through the book is is what does it mean to live at a time like ours where we are um experiencing the early effects of climate breakdown, um, when we know our leaders are not doing nearly enough to, 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 to prevent catastrophic outcomes, um, when we are living through you know, an unprecedented health crisis, at least in our lifetimes, um, when we have such unprecedented uh, um, wealth inequality, mm. um, you know, things are unraveling, <laughs> they, really, they really are, and yet, you know, like in the face of these crises, we need to act together. Mm -hmm. We need systemic change. We need collective action. That's the only thing that's going to, that holds out any kind of hope of, of change on the scale that's required. And yet, at that same time, ourselves, our individual selves, um, the dream of the perfected self just, just, just grows and grows and takes up more and more cultural uh, space and 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 personal headspace, mm. and so I look at these different forms of doubling, like we've talked about branding and and the optimized self. I also talk about wellness and the perfected body, but I also talk about the perfect family, the dream of the perfect family, and I look at vaccine misinformation and this um, sort of stone cold terror that if you get your kids vaccinated, you could end up with a neuroatypical kid that spreads. And, you know, it's it's not by accident that some of the um, the the most effective spreaders of misinformation have been like models and actors who really had done a very good job of perfecting themselves mm. in 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 these you know sweepstakes of the self, and then found that they actually had a child who didn't met, met but didn't um, conform to social expectations of what the child as brand extension, mm. you know. They, they, they might have wanted. And so I, be, I believe that a lot of the, the vaccine misinformation is, is really about that. Um, because it, it isn't, yes, there, there, you know, there's the debunked paper that appeared in The Lancet and The Lancet finally retracted it. But really what kept it alive was Jenny McCarthy going on all the shows and, and getting, getting these huge sort of celebrity platforms and other celebrities who also played, played, played a similar role. Then during COVID, a lot of you know, wellness influencers played a huge role in spreading misinformation about the COVID vaccine. So I do write about my family and having a neuroatypical child. I don't write about him. I don't share anything personal about mm. him or his inner life. What I write about is, 
is it in my experience in the parent communities that surround this where I've met many, many parents who are pushing miracle cures and mis like, um, you know, misinformation about vaccines and lawsuits about vaccines. I mean, because being a parent in that world, you meet them at, you know, at, 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 you know, sp sp sporting events, yeah. they, you know, like my son was in part of a program called Buddy Ball, which was for kids with autism that paired them with neurotypical teens. And it was a lovely program, but I would have these wild conversations with parents on the side of the playing field where they would just share some of their theories with me. This is pre-COVID. Yeah. Um, you know, I met a lawyer who, who had a, a, a child diagnosed with autism and he was like, T it's for sure the vaccine is for sure the vaccine. And basically kind of seeing if I wanted to, you know, join his, his crusade. Um, and so I, I, I think this is part of the same phenomenon of kind of but the child is the double, mm -hmm. right? And here in the UK, you know, you have, you know, such a strong history of kind of parents naming their kids the same name. You know, this is the way, um, you know, elite power yeah. propagates itself. So like the, the child is a temporal extension of, of, of the parent. And so, yeah, that chapter is really about like, what if we saw our kids just as their own autonomous beings and tried to love them and support them for who they are? Um, and yeah, that, that it was definitely a more personal kind of writing. But I think um, ultimately the kind of doppelganger that concerns me most is the way whole societies can flip into mm -hmm. fascist versions of themselves, mm -hmm. um, can turn on s segments of their populations. And what we know from Nazi history <clears throat> is that disabled people were the first people to be mm. gassed. Um, the first people to be to be murdered in in large numbers, including autistic children. So that's where it all fits into this kaleidoscope of doubles. Yeah, and uh, as you sort of touched on there, it one of the I had one of those moments towards the end of the book where I if, like a little light bulb went off, and it's this idea that if we accept that we as as a race, if you like, right now on planet Earth at this moment, are faced with a crisis. Mm -hmm then how you react to that crisis tells you something about basically whether you are on the left or on the right, or if you're that type of person or that type of person. Mm -hmm. And it's something you sort of touched on earlier, which is that if in the face of crisis you're looking for somebody to blame mm -hmm. and you are talking about conspiracy mm -hmm. and taking up arms in order to fight whatever this problem is, which isn't the actual problem, which is the crisis. Yeah then that puts you firmly towards the right. Whereas if you're the person who is thinking, how do we all work together to deal with this problem? And it will be only solved by us working together, every single one of us, however mm. different our lives might be, that sort of puts you on the left. And for anybody listening or watching, <laughs> have a little think about how you feel about these things. Mm. Uh, and I was like, that's the simplest explanation I can think of about mm. working out where you are in the world. And all we're talking about here is, of course, climate crisis. Is mm -hmm. thinking, what, yeah. where are we right now and, and how do we deal with it? Mm -hmm. And is that, I suppose, first of all, is that a fair summation of that very complicated topic? And is that maybe one of the main takeaways from the book? It's certainly one of the main takeaways from the book is that, you know, it, it, not that we need to annihilate our our individual selves, or you know, or that we we can have no egos. I mean, we all we all are going to care about ourselves and care you know, and have egos, and that's healthy. But I think that we that that we live in a a culture where the size of the self 
is completely out of proportion and it is serving us poorly mm. in the particularly in the face of those crises but in lots of other ways as well um, and our children poorly um, who don't want to be our brand extensions for the most part um, and and that and that you know I think that big uh, one of the takeaways of the book is is um, we we do need to you know, I, I, I quote the slogan from the Bernie campaign, which I say is bigger than Bernie and, and you know, not me, us, which was, um, you know, what brought millions of people together under this idea of like, not just that, not Bernie, but us, but like, you know, one of the things that you really, that I found when I, when I was working on that campaign was so many people are suffering under the weight of feeling that all of their problems are their own fault and failing, whether it's, you know, the fact that they're so close to eviction or the fact that they can't pay their medical bills or they can't pay their student debt, um, they have pathologized themselves. They've accepted this idea that it is their own lack of, of planning and saving and, and just that they failed. They failed as selves. And the power of a movement is it says, actually, no, there are systems that, that are designed to create these outcomes and you are not alone. There is a broader us, right? And that is, that's the work of organizing, mm -hmm. you know, and that's bigger than Bernie that, you know, that and, 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 um, and really needs to outlive that, that campaign. Um, but, but what I would say is, while that is, I think, a really important sharp distinction around whether or not we're going to get out of this moment of crisis, I would say that it isn't only the right where, that, um, th where these logics have really infiltrated. I think social movements on the left you know, are, are by no means immune mm. to, to this sort of the branded kind of celebrity activist. And, you know, and in the book I talk about having been that person yeah. you know, in my 20s when I was sort of anointed to, to, be, to, 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 to be the face of a movement mm. um, without the movement ever consenting. It was like, what, whoa, whoa, <laughs> why her? Um, and, and so you know, we're all swimming in the same waters. And so I think it's very easy to be like, oh, it's all them. We are the good people, right? Um, I mean, COVID's still here. Are we all wearing masks? Mm. No, we're all, we're all doing what they were doing a year ago when we were all saying, how could you monstrous people, you mm. know? So, um, I, you know, I think that it's, I, I think that being alive on a knife edge moment like this, when we know that we are complicit, um, it isn't just that all these things are happening. It's that we're complicit. Mm. We're complicit in these crises where we, um, you know, we can't have lunch or, you know, go anywhere um, or put any clothes on our bodies without some level of complicity. And this is, you know, what I've been writing about since No Logo. But mm. I think all of what we're talking about, whether it's like the perfected self, which transcends left, right, right, um, or the perfected kid um, or the wild conspiracy, like these are all ways of looking away from the thing that we most fear, mm. right? And doppelgangers emerge throughout history in moments when when we're having trouble looking at, at something like after the first world war and the carnage during the rise of hitler you know charlie chaplin famously you know creates the 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 himself as the both the victim and victimizer and the great dictator he's mm. the jewish barber he's the he is the the hitler-like figure um and by creating that split we can look at something that's almost impossible to look at which is our complicity or even our potential 
um, capacity to be a participant in a monstrous system. Mm. Um, so that is a very hard thing to look at frontally. But if you create a double, you can look at it a little sideways. With those cultural touchstones that you've just sort of mentioned and some of the books that we were talking about earlier, what is the outcome often of that encounter with the doppelganger and does it leave you with confidence about our future? I mean, confidence. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Hope? Um, I think doppelgangers always carry messages. Mm -hmm. And I think we're now in this really interesting moment where doppelgangers are suddenly all around. You know, we've got doppelganger novels like Deborah Levy's novel, August Blue. There's Dead Ringers starring Rachel Weisz, a remake. Um, there's all these weird, like, um, doppelganger finder websites. There's doppelganger crimes in the headline. It's like, what's going on? I thought it was just me. And mm. now suddenly everyone's talking about doppelgangers. Um, so they, you know, in mythology, they're messages. They're, uh, and, and so I'm interested in what messages we can tease out of this moment where we're all multiplying, right, with AI and mm. everything else. And, and like I said, I think, I, think, I think there is some hope to be had if we can loosen the grip on, on, the, on the tyranny of the, of the self. Um, and I think, I think a lot of us want to. Um, so I would wish that maybe people might find something a little freeing in the, in, in, in the, I mean, there's a line in, um, in, 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 in Jordan Peele's Us, uh, which is how many of everybody is there going to be? <laughs> and, and as we see how many of everybody there's going to be, maybe we can guard the borders of, the, of ourselves a little less jealously um, and sort of soften the boundaries and realize our, our interconnection. There's a there's a beauty in the idea that we are not alone in this world. Mm. There's like a there's there's something kind of magical about that too. Mm. Um, my own doppelganger aside, um, Francois Brunel, who's a um, a photographer in Montreal, has done this wonderful project on doppelgangers where he he takes pictures of people. It's called I Am Not a Lookalike, and he takes pictures of um, people who have been mistaken for each other. Mm. And what's really um, wonderful about these hundreds of photographs is not that, oh, wow, those people really look alike. It's that they seem really interested in each other. Like, they're not threatened by it. It's yeah. like there's a sort of, um, like, it, there's a beauty in the connection. There's a tenderness in that. Um, and so I think that that's a message that doppelgangers can carry. That is a wonderfully positive note to finish on. Naomi, thank you so much. Thank you. I was so tempted to finish off by saying, Naomi Wolf, thank you so much. <laughs> thank um, you for not doing that. <laughs>